In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talaqui. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Talaqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I begin, um, on Monday I completely forgot to mention something very important because I had a guest. I think that threw me off a little bit, but I didn't say anything about uh, the tragic earthquake that took place on the Iran-Iraq border where already more than 540 people have been killed and more than 8,000 have been injured and most of them on the Iran side of the border. So uh, our, our thoughts and prayers, of course, go to everyone who's been affected and um, also our support for the recovery efforts that are in full effect. And I know many people, including so many of our listeners, are involved with that. So again, um, our hearts are heavy this week because of that, and we are thinking of them all. And um, thank you to the listener from Seattle who uh, mentioned this to me Monday that I'd forgotten to do so, so I made sure to do it today. Uh, Okay, moving on from that, before I begin the summary of the book, for the past week, I wanted to announce the book for next week. It is The Trauma of Everyday Life by Mark Epstein, The Trauma of Everyday Life by Dr. Mark Epstein. Uh, I had not read this book before and really just came across it at the bookstore. I kind of liked the title and what I saw about it, and it's been interesting. It's uh, looking at trauma and looking at Buddhism and a lot of the teachings of the Buddha and how it could relate to dealing with emotional trauma. So it's been an interesting read so far. Now, the book for this past week that I'll talk about now is the first book of literature that I've included as a book of the week, and it is The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. Um, Now, before I talk about the book itself a bit, I did want to talk about reading literature, reading fiction, and the benefits this can have. Um, Lots of people subscribe to this notion that reading fiction is reading stories, and because of that, it's just for entertainment or um, it's just fun or you don't really get anything out of it or you can't learn anything from it. And I even used to think this sometimes, and I've heard it from lots of people, that they prefer reading books that are uh, about knowledge and information that they can learn from, not storybooks, as they kind of demean them to say. Uh, But there's a lot of research, although it's hard to research this, but showing the benefits of reading literature from... Um, benefits to your cognition and attention, to creativity. Also, importantly, things like empathy and being able to understand others. Uh, so, I, And I think anyone who's experienced reading a book of fiction can see these benefits they experience themselves, just getting immersed in a world, using your imagination to 
uh, try to understand what is happening um, and also understanding more about ourselves, the human experience and others through that process as well. So I don't think the benefits of reading literature, good literature can be underestimated and undermined. And that's why I wanted to include this book and I'll likely include a few others here and there um, that I think might be relevant to some of the topics I talk about on this show. And as I mentioned, this book specifically, I had heard about, uh, or I'd heard about before, but I thought of using it as a book of the week because in The Power of Meaning by Emily S. Vahani Smith, she talked about how this was a short novel or novella that looks at the meaning of life issue or this someone struggling with that. And uh, this book really, I, I hope if you haven't read it, you will, because it's a very short one. The, the version I have is under, under 100 pages. Um, but it's a very deep and meaningful book that I think you'd get a lot out of if you read. So the death of Ivan Ilyich follows the story of this man, of course, the main character, Ivan Ilyich, as he becomes ill and eventually dies. Uh, spoiler alert, but he dies at the end of the, the book. I guess the death of Ivan Ilyich doesn't uh, make it much of a spoiler. But you see him going through his life thinking that he's living the correct life. And really, this is Leo Tolstoy's um, attempt at showing the meaninglessness of the way most people live their lives. Or that when we live our lives based on what we think we're supposed to do or what's the quote-unquote right things to do, or especially in the service of looking good for others, which so many of us are doing, we reach the end of our lives and recognize that it had virtually no meaning at all. Um, and so you follow Ivan Ilyich as he moves up the social ladder and professional ladder and appears to be doing all the, the good things we think we want to do, um, becoming more successful in his career and even having some kind of power with what he does, working with the courts, becoming married, having children, making more money. Um, and it seems like he's doing everything we think should make us happy. And this is what I think so many of us still to this day experience, where we think we're living the life that should make us happy, but we don't feel it. Something is missing. Something doesn't quite feel right. And we don't ha have that feeling of meaning, that feeling of contentment, and that feeling that our lives have been worth living. And that leaves us feeling very disappointed and unhappy. Um, particularly, I, there's a lot of interesting things that happen in this book. It's a short book, but as I was reading it, you really get in touch with this dying man's experience and the pain and the anguish. And you really start to see that the physical pain is not so significant as compared to the emotional and mental anguish and pain he's going through, trying to struggle with understanding his own death or as it's, it's approaching him. Um, an interesting theme that you see closer to the end of the book is that his servant, uh, I don't know how to quite say this, Gerasim, G-E-R-A-S-I-M, um, takes care of him and in some ways is the only one that recognizes or acknowledges that he is dying. The rest of his family say that he's sick or they approach him as sick. And although they know he's dying, they never talk about it or acknowledge it and just assume he's going to quote unquote get better or, you know, he's going to pull through it. But Jurassic is not that way. He does talk about it and acknowledge it, but also he's incredibly kind and compassionate. And in a way, this 
message comes through that living this artificial life, as we can describe it, living this life for other people, living this life that makes us, we think, look good to others or in front of others or what people think we're supposed to do, does not allow us to feel good and feel like we're living the good life. But there is this more authentic, genuine life that is um, marked or signified by things like empathy, compassion, sympathy, doing something that means something to us rather than that which feels good in the moment or makes us look good in front of other people. And so although we might think of him, Ivan Ilyich, as this successful man, successful in the traditional sense, we see that his uh, servant is actually the one who is living the good life because he's living a life that has compassion and kindness in it. And in a lot of the book, we basically are inside of Ivan Ilyich's head as he grapples with facing his own death. And, and there's a few excerpts, one I'll read, that I think were really telling that made me think um, that I want to share with the listeners. Uh, so here he is in a lot of pain, and he says, and he sees that death is facing him, or he feels that it is, and he's trying to come to terms with that. And he says, maybe I did not live as I ought to have done. It suddenly occurred to him. But how could that be when I did everything properly, he replied, and immediately dismissed from his mind this, the sole solution of all the riddles of life and death, as something quite impossible, end quote. So to me, that line, how could that be when I did everything properly, um, really jumped out at me when I was reading the book, because it's that idea that many of us have that we're living this the good life, what we're supposed to be doing, but we don't even recognize that this life is without meaning, that there isn't anything in it that actually matters, that we're just living it because we think we're supposed to do it, and it's a very empty existence. And even we see that he doesn't have much of a relationship with his wife. His wife almost seems more preoccupied with how things look to other people than actually showing love and care for her dying husband, or even acknowledging that. And even with the daughter, you feel the same sense too. She gets re engaged um, near the end of the book and appears more concerned with that than her father. And even when they're around him, it's almost this feeling of, of pity, uh, not really this feeling of care. And more and more, Ivan Ilyich becomes annoyed with his family. He doesn't want to be around them, but he does feel this compassion from his son. And there's some beautiful moments at the end where you see he recognizes this meaning of life, of that of compassion, of love. Um, and as he's getting close to death, he no longer hates his wife and daughter and actually feels sympathy and compassion for them rather than hating them. Um, and this book was, uh, you know, written by Leo Tolstoy to really make a social commentary, but also in his own experience of facing his death and what that means. And so we see him giving us this insight that we don't want to be at the end of our lives and look back and see that it was meaningless. If we do what everyone tells us to do or we think we're supposed to do or do things because of how it looks to other people, when we get to the end of our life, we won't feel good. We won't feel satisfied and content and fulfilled with how we've lived this life. Interestingly, how Ivan Ilyich even gets injured or becomes sick is that he is, I think it's changing curtains or moving curtains in the home that he's trying to remodel or uh, 
create for when his family moves and he falls and hits his side and he thinks it's a, a minor injury but it appears that this is really what has done him in whatever internal bleeding or damages he had leads to his death but i also think that's an interesting uh commentary that he was here trying to make the house look nice in a certain way again something for other people something to make uh, his house looked more presentable or for people to think he was wealthy or high class or whatever else it might be. But it was actually with that that he gave his life, that he uh, incurred the injury that led to his death. So to live for other people, we actually already are giving our life to them. Um, we are giving ourselves away before we even get to live that life. And for many of us, if we recognize the choices we make, if we really look at them, we'll see that we're not making them because we want them or because we think they'll make us happy or even sometimes because we think it's right. But we think it's what other people will think is right, what other people will approve of and will make them like us and approve of us. And this is the life that's going to lead to unhappiness and a feeling of lack of fulfillment as we get older. We have to live the life that really is for us and only we know what that is. Only you can decide and choose and recognize what is a meaningful life for you. Um, but in, in reading this book, we're faced with our own mortality, something that most of us try to avoid. But we must recognize that, of course, that day will come for all of us. And the question will be, did we live a life worth living? Did we live a life with meaning? Did I live my life or did I live a life that was for other people, what I thought would make them happy or approve of me? Um, so this book definitely brings up a lot of philosophical questions and uh, really that most uh, existential question, the biggest existential question we have of what is the meaning of life is really brought face to face to us in this book. So I hope you'll read The Death of Ivan Ilyich if you haven't. Um, really a wonderful book by one of the greatest authors of all time, Leo Tolstoy. And I hope you'll also join me in reading the book of this week, The Trauma of Everyday Life by Dr. Mark Epstein. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air hi dr holakui good afternoon good thanks afternoon. for uh, taking my call sure thanks for calling sure um so basically i'm going to ask my question i would have to leave so okay. if you have any further question you can ask me but basically i'm going to listen on the air so before i start um, I just become to know about your show recently, mm -hmm. and I love to know which books you recommend, and if possible, listen to your previous shows. Is there any website sure. that you would? Yeah, so I have a, a SoundCloud page um, that has all my shows. That by the end of the week, I'll upload the shows, both shows from each week, and then also it's a free podcast on iTunes, so you can always listen to past shows through either of those. Also, the books of the week, I put a picture up on my 
Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So you can find me on either of those. And every week I post a picture of the book. So you can go back and see all of them there. Oh, awesome. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much. Sure. So my concern about is my 10-year-old son. Uh, So one thing that I'm dealing, I don't know, because my reaction was not proper from the beginning when he was younger, then he always has this expectation. Uh, Let's say he wants a toy. We buy it, uh, let's say it's Lego. So he builds the Lego. By the time he finishes building, he starts talking about, oh, what is I'm going to buy next time? You know, I wanted to buy another one, but I bought this one because I didn't have any money. So it's like I feel like he's never happy <laughs> with what he has. Mm-hmm. Like he asks for play dates. He goes play with the friends. Uh, sometimes he stay like for five or six hours even. But by the time he said, you know, it's time to go home or I go to pick them up, he starts talking, oh, that was the issue. When it's going to be the next time I'm going to see any friend. Oh, that's so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's like, I feel like he's never happy with what you gave him. He always mm. says, you're unfair. <laughs> so, yeah, let me ask you. First of all, do you have any other children? Yes, I do. Seven oh. years old. You another s- boy. Another boy, seven. Okay. So that could be, there could be something there of him. The jealousy there could be that he wants more and more. He, he might have lost you and his father for a while if you had a younger one and felt like he's trying to fill that with other things, like he's never satisfied. So there could be this a kind of a deeper injury that goes back to, to the childhood or early childhood where he felt like he wasn't getting what he wanted in something that was very meaningful, love and attention from you and his dad. And now he's compensating that by never being satisfied or in in a way always showing you disappointment in what you give him. Do you remember how he reacted to his baby brother being born? So um, he was basically fine. I didn't notice any time that even they were kind of not completely alone, but by themselves he does something to hurt his brother mm-hmm. and he always has that feeling that he has a hard time expressing himself and another issue is that this age he would easily cry for anything like food or even water like mm-hmm. he's so emotional and sometimes it's really hard to know what's going on inside mm-hmm. and he just show all express all the feeling by sometimes crying and sometimes anger was he that way since uh, he was a baby was that kind of his temperament Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, it's not grown up, in a sense, if I want to have an explanation. Well, it's not grown up, but it also seems like this might be kind of his disposition or his temperament. You're, you know, you're saying since he was a baby, he was easily, he would cry or fuss about things. Is that right? Well, when he was a baby, actually, he was the other way around. Oh, okay. Like, he was very calm, quiet, like, mm. even... Um, you know, as a very young, like as an infant, he never cried for a shot. He never cried with a stranger. Uh, it was so strange to me. It's like he, he was okay with anything. But when he got around like five or six years old or so, so he started to show all the emotion as crying and asking for things. And then sometimes even now when I ask him something, he has a hard time explaining, but instead he just cried. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe he does have a... How does he do verbally in general, even in school? Uh, is he okay verbally in, in, let's say, English class or the, the language classes? I see. 
So the thing is, again, the same thing in the school, like he's normally quiet, like the um, teachers laughing. So, mm-hmm. Oh, he's never troublesome, he's always okay, nice, friendly with friends. But I guess like he wants to play with some friends, but he never asks them or he gets so emotional. Like if he wants to get close to a friend, a friend chooses somebody else to play with. And I know that he has all these things inside, but then when he comes home, he cannot explain it. Like a couple of days later, maybe he would tell me something, but not on the same day. It seems like he, I don't know, forget or he tries to just ignore. It's like all these feeling things which I can't really figure out. Does he really forget and do not care or he just care, but try to calm himself down in the pool. Well, it doesn't it seems like he cares a lot. So I would more than likely throw that one out that it's not that he doesn't care because you're saying he's almost emotionally reactive and he right, feels right. so much. So it, it seems more likely that he's for some reason afraid or uncomfortable telling you what he's feeling or what he's going through, which is where uh, you know you and his father come in that you have to be aware of how you respond to his emotions. You know, it seems like he can be extreme with his feelings, which puts you in a tough spot because you might have a reaction to that. But you have to try your best to not make him feel that you are annoyed or upset or that his emotions are a burden. Because if he feels that when I come tell mom about something that happened at school, she gets really worried or really scared or gets mad at me or judges me, then he's going to feel that it's safer not to tell you. And that's what you want to be aware of. That if he comes and tells you, for example, I got so mad at this kid at school, that at first you want to stay with him and try to understand, okay, what was his experience? What happened? You know, almost with this assumption that if something made him angry, you know, we want to understand what that something is. It makes sense that he got angry. Not necessarily that if he acted out, he should have acted out. But at least so we try to understand his feelings and we show him that we value and validate his feelings, and we're not going to make him feel bad if he got angry. We can try to help him deal with it better, but we don't want him to feel bad about his emotions. Um, Roy, that's true. I think I just partially did that, but obviously mm-hmm. not fully. Even though when he cries, I try to say, you know, it's okay to cry. That's, that's fine. Can you just explain more? But I think he has just having a hard time expressing the feeling like he doesn't know how to put them together to tell me i guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that might be i don't know if i can explain it well or no i, I'm, I get what know. you're no no <laughs> it's funny you're saying he has a hard time explaining and then you think you're having a hard time explaining his explaining but i understand i, I can try to understand what you're saying or i seem to get an idea of it but even what you told me it's great that you tell him to cry and it, it depends on the timing but i would say be aware of not trying to pressure him to so quickly then tell you about it. Give him some time. Because even in what I heard you say, sometimes parents do this, you know, a kid comes to them crying and because we're so worried about it or we want to know and help them and stop the crying, we say, well, what is it? Tell me what happened. What's wrong? What's going on? And we almost badger them with those questions that can feel like too much. So when he's that emotional, it's going to be hard for him to put it into words, you know, when he's so overwhelmed and still crying and still upset. So be patient with him. Even You even verbally can say this, but also uh, implicitly we want to give him the feeling that you can cry as long as you want, and then when you're ready to talk, I'll be here to listen. So not this feeling of you have to hurry up and tell me or stop crying or tell me so I can help you, but yes, I'm going to hold you or I'm going to be here for you as long as you need to cry. 
uh, that could give him at least this feeling to calm down because if you ask him when he's too stressed out, he's going to have a hard time. And we want to show him that he can do this. He can get better at this. Putting words to our feelings is actually very important. Even that's something that parents from even a younger age than 10, but even still you can do this with him, even this is a part of what happens in therapy, not just with kids, but even adults, is to help put words to the feelings. And we know that this actually in and of itself can be helpful and healing to understand and be able to verbalize. You know, kid comes to you and says, oh, they didn't let me play. And then they say, oh, it must have been so hurtful when those kids didn't let you play with them. And you must have felt so sad that they didn't let you join in their game because you wanted to play and you feel like they left you out. So even you can sometimes try to, you know, not to put words into his mouth or not to tell him what he was feeling, but times when he's struggling, you can gently um, almost suggest or work through with him what he might be feeling to help him label and put words to his emotions. I see. Yeah. Sure, thank you so much. Sure. That's a great suggestion. Dr. Holaku, if you don't mind, I will ask um, two more questions, and I sure. listen to you on the air. No problem. Um, so one thing, again, um, I'm having a little bit issue of, um, so when he expects more, mm-hmm. like what should be my reaction? And another thing is I feel like um, he might have anxiety, so I really would like to hear from you uh, how should we go about it, and do you really recommend hypnotism as a therapy or any other method in case if, um, you know, that was, um, you know, anybody, even adults or kids. Uh, get diagnosed with. Sure. What, I mean, I know you have to go, but when you talk about his anxiety, how does it show itself? Sure. How, I'm sorry, say it again. How do you see his, and when you say he's, he has, you think he has anxiety, how does he show his anxiety that you're saying you think you see that? I see. Just scared of this little thing coming downstairs by himself, mm-hmm. and in the morning he has some physical symptoms that shows that, you know, he mm-hmm. has some, I think, anxiety um, so I talked to his pediatrician, and he suggested that uh, go for um, like hypnotism. That that's the quicker way. But I wanted to <laughs> hear from you, uh, like, uh, is it a good uh, way to go about it, or is there any other method that has proven to work better for sure. younger kids? Okay, Thank sure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Okay, Thank take you. Care. Bye. Bye. All right. So there, there really was maybe three more things she brought up, and of course, uh, getting to go back and forth with her with her would have been better. But I understand she had actually let me know during the break that she had to go pick up her kids, so she couldn't stay on too long. Um, but first, she said about the expecting more. Now, with our children, we want to give them what they want, or we think we're supposed to give them everything that they want and we want to make them happy, but we actually aren't supposed to give them everything they want all the time. And and really we can't. Your kid might say, I want to stay up till 2 a.m. today watching TV or playing video games on a school night. And we can't just say, okay, sure, because I want to give you what you want. That's actually going to hurt them. Uh, And in general, setting limits with them is a good thing for them to learn that you don't just have unlimited of everything all the time. When you're a baby, you want to have this feeling that you nothing can go wrong and everything's to be taken care of and all your needs get met virtually instantly. But as we get older, this becomes less and less. And the child actually has to learn that the world doesn't just revolve around them, that everything they want is not going to happen all the time, just as they want it. This is not meaning we hurt our kids or don't give them what they want or put them in bad situations, but that we get them to realistically see the world they're living in and what they can expect that 
um, you're not always going to get what you want. So setting limits, although we might think it's a negative thing, it's, it's actually not. We need to give our kids boundaries and limits that actually allows them to feel safer. And they very often will bounce against those boundaries. So if you uh, were to enter a house and you wanted to make sure it was dirty, you might push against the walls to see how strong that house is. Can it support you and take care of you? Um, and protect you against the weather. Similarly, kids will push against the boundaries to see what's there. Is the wall strong enough to hold them in? And as a parent, your job is to make sure they feel that, that you can have firm yet flexible boundaries. It doesn't mean that if there's a rule, you won't break it no matter what, even in an emergency, but that when it's reasonable, you will always maintain that rule and boundary, and you have to understand your kids are going to challenge that. You know, I want to play 30 more minutes, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. And you have to let them know, I know you want to do that. And this is what I talked about actually last week. We always say yes to the emotion, but you can say no to the behavior or the request. So they say, I want a 10-hour play date. And you say, oh, I know you have so much fun with your friend and you have such a great time and you wish it could last forever. But because it's a school night, I talked to his mom and we have, we're going to stop at 6 p.m. So you have time to come and do your homework and go to sleep. So you can still say no to that, but always say yes to the feeling. We want to validate the emotions make them feel that we understand where they're coming from, but that still, as the adult, we have to set boundaries. Sometimes a child wants to run in the street. We have to stop them. We say, because I'm trying to protect you, because I'm here to take care of you, I can't let you go there. It's not going to be safe for you. I have to take care of you. So the expecting more... Um, one, as I was saying, we have to set the limits and boundaries and be aware of that while listening to the emotions. But always we want to see when a kid keeps asking for more, not just focusing on the thing we're dealing with, but see if there's something else lacking. And usually we're talking about something bigger, like parental attention and love. And so in this case, I brought up the fact that he has a younger brother. Um, there could be some jealousy there or also a continuing feeling of not getting enough. And I didn't get to ask her more about how available dad is and how much time mom has with the kids. But when your child seems to be what we call, quote unquote, spoiled, which sometimes people say spoiled, they want too much of, you know, toys or food or candy or other things. We want to see is there something that in fact is missing and they're trying to compensate by getting more of something else? It's like if you didn't have any food, but they brought water, you'd probably drink way more water than you needed just to try to fill your stomach a little bit, but that wouldn't be good. But it's because of the lack of food that you're drinking too much water, not because you're a glutton for water. So we want to be aware of this uh, lack somewhere else when we see a kid asking for what seems to be too much in another area. Now, looking at the anxiety, lots of people and lots of children are dealing with anxiety. And the way we want to look at anything like depression, anxiety, isn't how do we erase it or get rid of it completely, because that's likely impossible. If your child is a very anxious child, you won't have a child with no anxiety. Even that's not really possible, but you won't have a, likely a child who has very low anxiety. They might always be dealing with it. It could be a physiological, psychological thing genetically inherited issue that they're dealing with. So we shouldn't expect, okay, how do I get my kid to make that disappear? And related to that, the hypnotism, to be honest, I don't know if that really would work with kids to get rid of fears and phobias. And even the idea that that's the quickest way, um, to me, doesn't necessarily mean it's a good way. And I wouldn't recommend that for a child that takes them to the, through hypnosis. Um, but definitely they could go to therapy and do something like play therapy uh, to help 
deal with that issue with children. Play therapy can be very helpful. Is it going to be immediate? No. But generally speaking, I don't believe that any of these types of issues are dealt with immediately. The quick fixes and the shortcuts almost always don't work or there's something more to them. So personally, the hypnosis is not something that I would recommend, but if you feel like your child does have significant anxiety and there are these fears, you can speak with him and see how he would feel about going to see someone that can help him with that. And I'd be very careful not to make him feel like he's a problem or something is wrong with him or you don't like him for what he's feeling. And maybe you think it's obvious you don't think those things, but it's easy for your child to feel that when you say you have to see this doctor to fix you, which is how it could sound. But it's more that, you know, you deserve to have somewhere to go talk because it seems like that kind of hurts. And here's a doctor that can help you hurt less. So it's about helping them feel better and hurt less rather than fixing them. Um, or dealing with this brokenness of them. So even in what the doctor said of going to hypnosis to quickly fix them, that philosophy or approach is not very comfortable for me either. I don't think that's going to sound good to your child. If he's dealing with the fears, if he's dealing with physical symptoms, which you're right, if there are physical symptoms without an organic cause, a biological cause that we are aware of, that can definitely be a sign of anxiety or holding on to emotional distress, uh, we want to deal with that. So I would look at the possibility of having your child see a play therapist, someone who works with children and has that experience, and that can be very helpful to him um, for that. And these issues, of course, it's not just send him to a psychologist and he's going to get fixed. We would have to look at deeper family dynamics, which we didn't get into. So even if you do see someone, talk about the family as well. We want to see how the family dynamics are contributing to what your son is experiencing and exhibiting in his behavior. But thank you for your call. I hope that was helpful and you were able to listen to that. Uh, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwe. back to In Session with Dr. Fadir Tulakwi. I wanted to talk a bit about um, something that's been in the news a lot. I, I brought it up already, and it's the uh, all these sexual misconduct um, allegations that are coming out over very uh, prominent figures in the entertainment industry and others as well. Uh, and there's really been kind of this cascade effect that as some people have come forward, it has made it easier for others to come forward as well, um, which I think is actually a very good thing. Uh, people sometimes ask, well, why have people waited so long? And I had Dr. Rachel Partioli on a while ago now to talk about sexual abuse and all the things that someone can go through as a victim of that, especially if they were a child, but even as an adult, and coming forward is not an easy thing whatsoever. And many people can feel shame, embarrassment. They're afraid of the repercussions, afraid of being blamed. 
um, and a bunch of other reasons why they might not come forward. So we shouldn't take someone's delay in coming forward as an indictment that they're false statements or accusations. Don't ever think that. Is it possible people make something up? Yes, but to think because they waited it had to be fake or fabricated is definitely not true. Uh, I've worked in therapy with people who talk about their sexual abuse in therapy, but I've never told another person before. So um, I definitely know that that can be a very real thing, that someone holds on to that and never tells anyone, and maybe only comes forward at some time. And really, it's a personal thing. We can't tell someone this is a time to come forward or not, because sometimes people say, well, should I tell the person to tell other people? Um, and it has to be a personal thing, because uh, just as the person was violated by the individual who abused them, it can feel like a violation uh, if someone were to share their story without them wanting to, or to push them or pressure them. It again can have that feeling again of being uh, forced to do something you don't want to do. And it's a very personal thing for the individual to know when they feel ready to talk about it. And if and when they do, it can be a very empowering process for them. Uh, but people, again, can have different reactions. Sometimes it brings up the painful memories and painful feelings. So we want to absolutely give the person the space to, to come forward if and when they want to do that. So I wanted to make that statement because I sometimes hear people say, oh, look, all these people coming forward now, it must be fake or fabricated. Why are they coming forward now? But once people make it more okay to come forward and people hear someone make those uh, statements, it does make it more easy for others. And that's why I can have a very th therapeutic effect. And this hashtag of Me Too, where women were encouraged to share their own personal stories of being sexually harassed or abused, I think definitely contributed to this more opening up of this idea that we can talk about this. And of course, unfortunately, this idea of men being sexually abusive and harassing to women is something that is essentially embedded in our culture, that it's... Uh, at some level, it was actually acceptable for a long time. And now we're more and more moving towards the progress of saying it's not acceptable. But of course, it's still very much in the culture, especially in certain industries, and especially with individuals who have power, who feel that they can do whatever they want without repercussions, um, that because of their power, they should be able to do certain things and they won't get caught. And a host of other reasons does contribute to that. So we have a lot of work to do, but I think fortunately we're making steps in the right direction. And like like lots of things, progress can feel uncomfortable. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now, where people don't like hearing about it. They feel weird. When it's someone they don't like, they can really jump on board. But for a lot of people, when it's someone they're a fan of or they like, they don't want to believe it. They go into denial mode and they want to pretend like it's not true or blame the victims or accuse the victims of making things up. But the sad truth is, uh, very often it's true. Uh, Louis C.K., who I think actually was the most talented comedian um, right now, I know it's not good to say that based on what's happened recently, but just based on just comedic talent, I thought he was the best. Um, he had at least five people come forward saying that he had done some indecent sexual acts towards them. And he actually acknowledged that the stories are all true, which, I mean, in that sense, 
was a, a good thing that he did that, but although there's parts of his apology that I think were not very sincere or still demonstrated the lack of remorse or lack of really understanding the effect or what had happened, but I won't get into that. But I think for a lot of people, they'd say, okay, if it's this person or Harvey Weinstein, who maybe they don't care much about, well, that's fine. But when it came to someone they considered a, a comedic hero, then it was a problem. And that's also something I wanted to talk about, this idea of having heroes. We all, even from a young age, have this feeling that our first heroes are our parents, who we think of as invincible and omnipotent. They know everything. They can do everything. Nothing can happen to them, and they can protect us from anything. And at some level, we almost need this feeling that these heroes of ours, these personal protectors will always take care of us and make sure we're okay, that nothing bad can happen to us as long as we have them. And we idealize them and we put them on this pedestal. And this doesn't necessarily disappear, this feeling for wanting to have heroes. Sometimes it's because we didn't get what we needed in childhood. Um, and all of us, to a degree, of course, didn't get everything we needed. But as we get older, we still have this idea of wanting heroes. Sometimes it's athletes. I've definitely felt that, this feeling of a hero. And we have a hero, we merge with them. And that's why when they win, we win. When they lose, we lose. And that's why we can feel so devastated when they lose and feel so exhilarated when they win and feel better about ourselves. Even research has found, uh, first they found that athletes when they win, male athletes, have a boost in testosterone when they win and the dip in testosterone when they lose. But then they found that even the fans had a similar experience, which is quite incredible. So fans, when their team won, the fans of that team had a boost in their testosterone, the men, and when their team lost, there was a dip in their testosterone. So we see how affected we are, but not just affected like, oh, it's fun to watch the team, but we recognize that we ourselves uh, identify with our heroes or with our team. But in general, with our these heroes that we make, whether they're in sports or um, entertainment, whatever it might be, what we unfortunately do is we put them on a pedestal and we idealize them. And rather than recognizing that we just appreciate something they do, we think we have to take them full, holy, and actually make them holy as something and someone perfect or who doesn't make mistakes. So if I like uh, Kobe Bryant as a basketball player, then I have to think he's an amazing person. So when the rape allegations came forward now many years ago, you know, many people who were fans of his were denying that or they didn't want to believe that it was true. Um, where it's possible to just say, I really like watching him play basketball, but he's not a hero or a god. But we turn people into gods, and I think that itself is the problem. To idealize and idolize people is an issue. They aren't necessarily heroes. You can admire them for what they do, but they aren't perfect people. We don't really know much about their character completely, um, we're just admiring something that they're doing, whether they're a singer, an actor, a comedian, an athlete, uh, even a politician or someone who is a political figure. We admire them for what they are doing, but we have to be careful not to then do the easy jump to idealizing them and making them into a god. Um, some people I've seen recently writing, because of all these things of quote-unquote heroes, um, coming forward with negative allegations or people coming forward with negative allegations against them, this idea of be your own hero, that 
be the hero for yourself. Be the best person you can be um, for you. You don't need someone else to be your hero. But really recognize this easy step that many of us take in taking someone we admire and or admire something they do and turn them into a hero or God who must be good in all ways and must not make any mistakes. Because first of all, all of us are fallible. Everyone, whoever you admire, has flaws, has insecurities, has weaknesses, has areas in, in their life they need to improve. But when people get put into the spotlight, very often when we idealize them, we forget these things or we think they can't have any problems or mistakes um, or have any shortcomings. And it's interesting because oftentimes I've talked before on the show about dehumanization and how usually we talk about dehumanization saying making someone less than, um, which unfortunately we do with the populations like the homeless population, but also people co regularly do with other races or groups or, or even uh, groups of, uh, let's say the transgender, the LGBTQ community uh, sometimes can get dehumanized and various groups can be treated as less than. And unfortunately, when we look throughout history, anytime there has been some type of genocide or ethnic cleansing, before that there was a systematic dehumanization campaign, some kind of propaganda that was being spread to make it okay to exterminate these non-humans, somehow less than they were animals or um, rodents or bugs or something, where, okay, well, killing them is actually even a good thing, and we do that. So we see that ugly side of dehumanization, which is really, a, you know, we could say definitely the worst side. But interestingly, sometimes what we don't think about is with people that we idealize, that we put in this sphere of godlike, it's also dehumanizing. And by that, I mean, we're saying they're different than human. Yes, we're saying they are better than human in some way. We're saying they're better than the rest of us, quote unquote, mere mortals. But this isn't actually a good thing. It can be like a drug initially. It feels good and people admire you and praise you in a way that makes you better than human. But each individual needs to be allowed to be human because they have weaknesses and shortcomings and they are going to make mistakes. And we don't want to give them this almost unlimited power in a sense, that they can do no wrong and they can do whatever they want without consequences. That actually hurts them. It's not good for them. It might seem like something we all want to have that kind of power and appreciation and to be thought of in that way, but actually is not a good thing. So it's kind of the flip side of dehumanizing in a negative way, this idealizing and dehumanizing by saying someone is not human because they're somehow a god does not actually help them. It is not a good thing. And it's not healthy for us. It's not a realistic relationship with our world and with the people that we see in our world and we admire. So when someone comes forward and says, this is an allegation against so-and-so, of course, it's not going to feel good to find out someone whose career we admire has done some uh, very unfortunate acts. But we have to recognize that people are human, that this person, although we admired him or her in some category, doesn't mean that all of their life was lived in a good way or that we could just idealize them and hope that they were perfect because no one is. So be your own hero. You don't need to create someone and make them bigger than they are. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back.
back. Just a brief announcement before we go to the next caller. As I mentioned last week, we will be switching soon. It actually could even happen today or tomorrow. Um, the radio frequency from 100.3 HD3 to 94.7 HD3. And stay tuned for more announcements about when that transition happens. Um, this only affects people in the greater Los Angeles area who are listening through the radio, whether it's in their cars or uh, through a home radio. But if you're listening through the app, website, uh, or calling in, none of those will be affected. And related to that, the call-in numbers, I wanted to mention those. If you are on AT&T, Verizon, or Sprint, the number is 605-468-5800. For T-Mobile or Metro PCS, the number is 360-3984425. You can listen to the radio by calling into either of those numbers, but be aware of your own calling rates because they may apply. All right, let's go to our next caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Um, I wanted to um, ask you a question regarding my 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I, um, I have a 12-year-old son who uh, it's been almost 11 years I've been divorced from his mom. And uh, it's been a challenge to, because we are, you know, she, his mom is American and uh, was born and raised here. And I'm, I'm actually, uh, I guess they call it second generation because I was born here, but kind of raised between the two cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, uh, it, it was a very uh, heated divorce initially, and mom was very much uh, trying to control, didn't want to give me any custody. It was a really a battle. And the poor child went through so much for the first half of his life until the court finally gave us, uh, because I moved in within a mile or two miles of her, and uh, we end up having shared custody. Mm-hmm. Um, that says, um, in in the long run, he adopted really well because he he always had a tendency wanted to be with me, but mom always kind of like uh, was trying to control the situation and more uh, never encouraged him to have a healthy relationship with me. But as he got older and he was, you know, he's now 12 years old and he enjoys a lot of time with me. But the trouble is that I always, uh, I took him to therapy and they said that, you know, you need to, uh, we can see that the thing that he's been, this is a lot for him, like, you know, as far as the challenge of the cultural thing and uh, she wasn't very, like she would not even follow the custody orders we had initially she had primary and she wouldn't even let me see him for it was really it was hard and he wanted always to see me so i'm not sure if this is uh, what he what i'm going through now something to do with his childhood but he gets very he's very uh edgy he's it's, okay one of the sad things happened during this whole thing he got because of the fact that he, he mom i guess got him involved with the video gaming and he got going through the Xbox and and, and towards really in the last two three years he's been so much into video. In fact, sometimes it's that uh, you know I'm I'm like a, a game alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Like you know, he's an alcoholic. He says I'm. I mean, he he gets very frustrated when something doesn't go well with the game. And I try to uh, make it the same as what mom has as far as home life. 
and I actually myself enjoy games when I was, but it was more control environment because uh, it was different those days. It wasn't the Xbox wasn't such a popular. But um, the the problem I'm running right now is he uh, he's not. Uh, he has a complete different behavior with he's always afraid uh, to tell her like what he wants but with me he tells what, what whatever like he doesn't like he, he likes he almost like uh, he got to the court like he calls me hey kid I'm like hey, listen I'm not a kid I'm your father and you, you can't and then but he's oh yeah but he jokes around and then my mother who's um, fully ran and he she he, he actually badges her as like Sometimes tells tells her, "Look, oh, Iranian are, are like cultural thing. It brings stuff to hurt, be hurtful." Mm-hmm. And my mom, one time, even my mom, uh, very much uh, involved with him as ever ever since he was born, and always been, you know. So um, he uh, like he. Lo- I know he, deep inside he loves her very much, but he sometimes brings uh, like I, it's almost like reflecting the mom culture. Like oh you know we're we're American and then and mm-hmm. even sometimes even says oh you know my last name I don't know if I'm gonna ever keep it like that and 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 then and yet I said well would it be make you happy if you just live with your mom and you would get to visit and oh no 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 he like he's kind of playing the situation mm-hmm. because he knows that his mom prefers him to stay with her but. He also doesn't want me to not see him as the way it is. Like he enjoys because he has like I'm pretty much like we're a pal and like we hang out. Like I don't I'm I try to be you know father as much as I can, but now it's getting to the age that he's super comfortable. Sometimes he calls me name. Sometimes he uses bad languages, and I try to discipline him. And then he calls his mom on the phone. And then they got get on the phone, and I kind of like have no control. So I said, you know what? You can just go have your mom come and pick you up, because it's just like you know. And then he he really doesn't. I mean, I used to not let that happen. I thought about in, having going through the court and intervene, because I mean I, it's hard. But um, it's just that he's almost at the age in uh, you know in I guess twelve year old. The court system really uh, accept their judgment as far as what they prefer. So, yeah. okay, it, it's, it's hard. Sure. So, so there's a lot, I, you know, there's a lot going on. So right now, you have shared custody with the mom. Yes, I'm shared okay. custody with mom. Okay. And uh, just because of the way our work schedule is, when she works, I'm home. When I'm work, she, you know, uh, you know, it's just, it just works out perfectly. Okay. So. No, yeah, this is a very complicated situation, and we're, we're dealing with divorce and co-parenting. It almost always is, but it seems like it's even more that. Now, to begin with, going back to the divorce, I know you said it was a heated divorce, and it seems like the way at least you're describing your wife was attacking you or making you look bad in front of your son. Um, but the way I look at it, I even drew myself a little picture here while you were talking of uh, you know an image of it, uh, really... When parents do this, your child is in the middle and you're firing bullets at each other. And so if your partner or your ex fires bullets at you, firing bullets back means that your your kid is going to get hit by them too. So your kid is in the middle and that's why fighting over your child or thinking you have to protect yourself and make your partner or your ex look bad is never a good idea. You're just hurting your kid. 
And so we don't want to do that. Or even when it comes to the custody, even we do want to, yes, if we go to court, we want to have our child. And especially if our ex is mentally unstable, we might fight more. And I mean, really sick. I don't just mean because everyone who's getting divorced thinks their partner's mentally not fit. But I mean, really sick. It reminds you of that old fable where there's two women who were claiming that a boy was their child and they went to a wise man to determine who's. Uh, child it was and they started he said pull from both sides to see you know see whose kid it is and the one who let go he knew that was the true mother because he didn't want to hurt his child so a true loving parent doesn't want to pull their kid in a battle or a war that becomes more about us than our kid so when it comes to these custody battles we shouldn't make them uh, messy we shouldn't make it a competition because many parents think that they want to show that see i'm the better parent the courts said that he or she stays with me more so just think of what you're doing you want to look good to other people and you're going to make your child pay the price absolutely a very selfish thing to do it's not about the kid at all um but getting back to where you are now it, it, you have to recognize yeah your child has gone through a very messy process for his whole life you, he got Uh, You know, his parents got divorced when he was about a year old. Intercultural marriage, which can be difficult, but it does seem like possibly his mother has said negative things about you and about the Persian culture, which um, even if you aren't of different cultures, this would be an issue. But especially what she's doing is telling her son, unfortunately, that half of you is is bad, too, which is the really bad thing. And that's why we always say don't make say negative things about the other parent because that's 50% of your kid's genes and they know that. But especially here when it's the culture, it's very clear if she sends him the message that Iranians are bad and he's half Iranian, well, how could he not internalize that at some level too, that I'm bad or that my mom thinks I'm bad? So that's, again, another reason why we never want to badmouth our other partner in any way, including their race or any other thing that's uh, about them. But your your son seems very very angry, uh, you know he um, the jokes that he's you say he's using they're clearly expressions of anger. Uh, you're saying even he calls you names or tries to joke with you, but those aren't jokes. He's he's very mad at you, and so um, you know I know you've told me about your ex wife's side, but my guess is you've made a lot of mistakes along the way too, and there's a lot of things that your your son is mad about. And you have to recognize that and at some level uh, apologize to him for that when you can right. talk to him. If you haven't already, and these conversations are delicate because you don't want to tell him I was a bad dad or I, you know, I did all these wrong things. But you acknowledge that you recognize what he's had to go through has been painful and that you've played a part in that. Because clearly he's angry with you and, and that's something you're going to have to accept. Well, you know, I, I, I should I should interject. I mean, he is angry in both of us. Yeah, no, sure. his mom his mom was uh, calling like certain answers. You know, he because lately he been he gets he goes to school and he was calling sick. And his mom said, "Well, don't call me unless you have fever stuff." So I, I'm sorry, but uh, just uh, just use a very bad language. I understand. Yeah. And then, uh, but look, but let me stop you there because I'm not. I even hear what I said. I said your son is angry at you. I didn't say your son is only angry at you, and right, you're right. you're attacking the mom. I don't. I'm I'm sure he's angry at her too. So I'm saying he's angry with you. I'm not saying you're the only one at well, fault. I, I, okay, I just want to make sure that. I, mean, I but but I know but I, yeah but this is not a courtroom. This is your life. Right, 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 so the right. only person you can control the relationship with is you and your son. Right. 
So I'll bring that back to you. So your son is going to be angry with you. I'm not saying you're more at fault than your ex-wife. I have no idea. Um, but when you're telling me he's angry with you, that's when you got to, to, to be aware of, okay, my, it makes sense that my son is angry at me. We had a heated divorce. You know, he's been in and out of my private, in and out of his life to some degree, or he hasn't had me as much as he wanted to, even though, yes, when you're divorced, that's going to happen. But you have to be aware of that. He's going to be angry with you. Now, when it comes to the video games, it's tough because you and you're, you're trying to do co-parenting. So you don't have um, a control over his time all of the time. But rather than saying no video games, I would try to introduce other things into his life. Uh, for his time, whether it's sports, activities, engage with him yourself in something, go for a walk or do a movie or do some kind of activity together where you get him away from that. Um, But it's going to be tough because half the time it seems like he's with his mom and you can't control what happens there. Now, what you guys can do and you should be doing, but it seems like it could be difficult based on your relationship with her, is um, co-parent or you have to communicate together about him. So you guys might not like each other, even hate each other now, but you both love well, this actually, same boy. Uh, fortunately, our relationship has improved when she got married again. And okay. uh, things got, we actually do communicate Good. in certain areas. Uh, but she, um, I don't know, it's just, she just doesn't, like, I, 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 I took, um, I went to therapy and I took classes how to deal with the difficult exes. Mm-hmm. So rather than me trying to point out, I always say, what, what do you think we should do? I see this is a problem. Mm-hmm. What can we do to solve it? So she acknowledged that. But the thing, what, what, what reason I'm calling is because he's completely different with her. He doesn't even acknowledge it. Well, I never, he never said this kind of stuff to me. And, he never, and, and he, it's true because he's, uh, he's afraid. He has some sort of a fear. Whenever um, it comes to, uh, I guess, he expressing himself to her as much. Like, he's not very freely expressed. Mm-hmm. With me, he's so freely expressed his feelings. So I'm almost, I'm, 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 at the, uh, I'm at the point that I'm going to have to get therapists involved because it's such a difference between when he's with me and telling all these negative things and how much he, is, he hates. And then get how much he hates what? Him, how much he, he, he hates the fact that uh, his mom is controlling him, and yet he also hates the fact that, um, that you know, he, 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 I, I'm not sure if he's really trying to play us, because uh, she, but she's always, like, she has her own insecurity. Like, she would eventually choose me, because uh, we were always like, you know, we're both guys, and you know, he's not getting to the age that he's, you know, father, I mean, naturally. Mm-hmm. Like, he wants to be, you know, do things with a guy thing. So she, I, I offer, it's funny you mentioned sports stuff, so I offer basketball, and she immediately jumped in, so, oh, I'm going to try to be, and she's athletic kind of person, like 5'9", you know, mm-hmm. so she wants to immediately jump into that and trying to go uh, <laughs> to the game, practice game. So I don't try to go there as much because, you know, I can do other things with them. But you can, but you guys have to work together. You know, we're actually past the commercial break, but I want to talk a little bit more because you brought up some dynamics at the end that I want to talk about. So just hang on line. We'll talk a bit after the break, okay? Sure, thank, thank you. Thank you. All right, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delokwi. We'll be right back. 
back before the break. We're with the caller. Let's go back to him. Uh, Radio Hamra, you're still there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, good. Thank you. So we were talking before the break about your son, who's 12 now, and you dealing with his mom. You guys have been divorced for about 11 years. And one thing I was noticing, again, in, in what you were talking about, and what happens a lot amongst divorced parents, is this feeling of competition. And it's not the only thing I'm hearing, but it's something I want you to be aware of, that when you get involved in any kind of competition with her, you're hurting your son again. And she seems to be trying to pull you in. So I'm, I'm not saying it's just you that's making that happen. It seems that maybe she's actually pushing for that. But that for you, you don't want it to become a game where he gets pulled into it. Because then he might be starts to play the game too, as you're saying you think he might be doing. And you want to be aware of not to create those feelings where he has to pick between you guys or um, try to make both of you either happy or unhappy or whatever it is that he might be um, doing. So you were trying to get involved with him in other ways, you said, but you felt that his mom maybe was trying to do that. And to me, that's okay. If, as long as he's going to the basketball practice or basketball team, that's good. We want to make sure he's just doing that and filling his time in a positive way. I guess my uh, I'll be very specific for a sake of time. What do you do when they call you names or they don't respect you, mm -hmm. and then you and you are co-parenting another uh, uh, parent that does you know we're not together? How do you handle that situation? When you when who does when your your ex-wife is not respected? My son, my, my son, my okay. twelve-year-old does not respect you or calls your name yeah. or. Or, uh, like I said, I, I brought the expression, it's like, hey, kiddo, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, I'm like, you know, it's almost like uh, he tries to establish ground and territory. Yeah, yeah he and definitely how, seems that way. Mm -hmm. yeah, how, and how do, you, uh, how do you deal with this kind of situation when, you know, and then, of course, then he uses all cultural difference, things that is reflecting his mind. I mean, I'm sure he picked it up from her. To try to be, you know, distant. I mean, I don't know if he wants to be hurtful, mm -hmm. but he. I I, I, I think he I does. Troubled. I I I am trying to. I am. I mean, I had spoken to his mom then numerous times, and someone suggests to me that maybe you have to take this phone things away so he can't just call her when you did. No, I don't. I don't like the idea of take the taking away. I don't think is. Um, the right, but you have to be aware of maybe how you're disciplining him. We can talk about that, and maybe that's something that can be improved on there. But again, leave the mom out of it. You're gonna have to deal with this between you and your son. And I think I, I definitely think he's trying to hurt you or, or cause you pain. He, like I said, I think he's angry with you, and he's also 12, and he's gonna get more into repel, a rebellious state anyway. So he, he has a lot of mixed feelings. My guess is he has a lot of mixed feelings towards you. He wants to be closer to you. He's angry with you. Maybe his mom has told you negative, told him negative things about you. And maybe he thinks being mean to you is being good to her. It, it's very complicated. But understand that your son is in a emotional and relational uh, maze or complex system. And he's trying to figure it out. And you have to try your best not to take it personally. Now, that being said... I'm not saying you have to accept disrespect or tell him that's okay. So you can let him know those things are not okay or you don't like them or that if he does those things, you're not going to engage with them. You're not going to say you can call me a name and then let's have a conversation. But um, I, I wouldn't get, I would recognize that it's coming from a place of him really being in pain. He's not doing okay. He's had to deal with a lot. And so him saying those things to you, of course, it doesn't feel good, but try to understand where he's coming from, which is, 
he's he's under a lot of pressure both from you and from his mom and he's trying to make sense of that he's trying to make it work um and i don't know about the whole path of how much time he spent with you he might be mad at you that he hasn't spent more time with you uh it, it could be a whole lot of things going on okay yeah, but taking so, it personally is going to hurt. So when you say you punish him or you discipline him, what does he do and then how do you discipline him? If you can give me an example. Um, I, I have, well, well, I guess my, what I learned uh, from through different professionals, like you take privileges away. Like if, he, uh, if he's not, for instance, he will say, well, tonight you're not going to have uh, this or please go to your room and ready to talk or some sort of thing like that but he is not it used to work like of course when they were younger or when he was younger we would say time out that worked really well when he was in uh, four or five years old but now you know it's more like uh, uh, I I can't ignore it because he really uses a very profound language that is not acceptable to me and then now he also attacks my own mother and my significant other was also uh, uh, per Iranian. So, so you are you, you got remarried. Well, I'm engaged, uh, and it's been a challenge because she's also uh, had never seen things like that. She's like, yeah, this, this is too much. I mean, you know, we come from different. I mean, she's purely Iranian, and she's like, I've never seen a, a child disrespect their father this much and call your name and you really and i i try to explain the background where you come from mm -hmm. then it's, it, she she does get the legit of it but the problem is that um you know of course uh, the, i i'm i'm also very much hurt because i can't I, I can't accept the fact that he disrespects my mother my significant other and anything uh, in that regard whenever and whenever it's all like I think I heard on your previous uh, conversation with a lady, like it's like it's, if they're his way, or he's gonna attack me. Mm -hmm. So uh, and uh, and I and I and I get it. I, I get it that you know. But then when I try to communicate this with the mom, mom says it's absolutely the other way around. And I believe that because I see that he's very in compliance with her. She calls like one. I mean, she's. She's very, always been controlling. Almost every night when he's with me, she calls and say good night. And that's how it's been ever since he was very young. Mm -hmm. So and he, he kind of enjoys it, doesn't. Like now he's getting to the age, like with me, he's like, Dad, I'm just busy with my friend. I don't feel like talking. But with her, he will never like, oh, mom's calling. So he's got like this. Yeah, there's an uh, example in psychology where the dog and pet, the bell. Mm -hmm. When you hear the bell, you kind of have that reaction. Oh, this is it. So he's kind of like, in, and then he's getting it now. He's getting to the age. He's like, why am I being this way with my mom? Like, and he did try to question it with me. Yeah. And I'm saying, why don't you work that out with your mom? Sure. Like, well, that's and, yeah, and that's what you have to be aware of. To not make it again a competition of why does he respond to her that way and respond to me this way? Because we don't. There, there could be a lot of reasons why, and even the way he responds to her isn't necessarily good. Um, even something you mentioned before the break that he's with you a certain way that he's not with her. It could be he's more angry with you than he's angry with his mom, or it could also be he's more comfortable with you so he expresses more of his anger to you than he does towards his mom. And this I don't know exactly... The, this is what the previous therapy said. Yeah. So, that, that, that he's right. more comfortable because you have not been as restricted and you also have been more trying to be 
I don't know. I, I, I felt really bad because during the divorce when he was little, very young, he didn't want to go and he was dragged and pulled mm. and he wanted to be with me. It was, it was just cultural difference. So I always took it back off a little bit. Yeah. And then, um, so he was always comfortable with me. And of course, my culture, my mom has always been a grandmother, always like, you know, spoiling kids. Yeah. So, you know, so that's the thing. I mean, and I don't know exactly if that's the case, but it goes back to what I was saying before about not taking it personally and about being patient with this. Um, And how long have you been engaged? Uh, Almost a year. And does she live in the house? She was, but lately she went back because she said this a little bit too much. Okay. And she can't tolerate the fact that he okay uh, sure so, so we have to figure out what to do with that but i'm hoping i get extra help from therapists because he attacks our culture yeah but i understand you know i understand right. I, but we have to not you know like i said the taking it personally thing and you're not representing the whole culture of iran when he attacks them you don't have to to, to defend it in that way you're, you're dealing with a very complex situation and i'd also hope that your fiance can recognize that and be supportive of you i'm not saying she should tolerate disrespect but this idea that uh you know you should control your son or that you know he should never disrespect you because i think in a way it does seem clearly that she's attacking you and i don't think that feels good for you it's a very complex situation and yes we can say in, in persian culture we've never seen uh, a son talk to their father like that first of all that's not true but second of all uh, a lot of times kids they fear their parents they don't respect them in a lot of the ways that traditional parenting that we do it's not that they actually respect us it's that they're afraid to disrespect us but they actually might even hate their parents so that's not necessarily a better thing and that doesn't necessarily reflect something good so this idea that it works because I beat my kid up and now he doesn't disrespect me doesn't mean anything to me. You can't right. teach someone respect by disrespecting them. That doesn't work. Right. So right. Um, I, I, I would hope she, you can even let her know that, that you need support from her. You understand and I can get from her. It's not a pleasant situation to have your son come in and be disruptive the way he is. But to make you feel bad about who you are or make you feel bad as a father or even as a man is not going to help the situation. Uh, if anything, it could put more pressure on you to become more reactive, which I think would be a problem. Like you were to try to control him by getting more aggressive. And it seems like you already might be doing that and you've created a power struggle with your son. And that's the okay. worst thing you can do because when you create a power struggle, it's just going to get worse and worse. He's going to get more manipulative. And because he has also his mom and he's there sometimes, he's going to pull her in to use that. And it's going to just get worse. You're not going to win the power struggle, not because you're not strong, but because power struggles don't work. You just end up creating a war. And we don't want that with your son. So recognize that that's happening within you, that you think, let me use my authority more. Let me use my role as father and that's only going to make the situation work where you're going to repair this is in the relationship you have with him which is going to take time he's 12 he has a lot of developing and growing and processing to do as kids get older they're going to look back on the divorce and what's happened and they see it in different ways so right now maybe he's angry at you or maybe he's only expressing it to you we don't know but either way as he gets older things will be more clear to him as to who was doing what what was going on And the less you 
disrespect his mom or say anything negative about her, the more you're respectful and kind towards him and the easier you make things on him, he's going to realize that as he gets older. Now, he might not show that to you right now, and it might still seem like he's favoring his mom or being nicer to her. But I, you have to take the bigger picture uh, approach of seeing that this is not something that tomorrow he's going to say, my dad is better than my mom. He might tell you mom is way better than you. But it could be because he's still longing for her love and he feels like he already has you. It's complex. It's complicated. So I hope you do go to therapy because it's going to be difficult. I hope even he goes to therapy or you go with him. Well, that's another problem. He's very, uh, his mom is not in favor of that. And that's also uh, been a hindering factor. I've been getting on and off here with help there uh, when we're dealing with other professionals. And it's, I mean, it's hard. Especially, you know, I, I, at some point, I said, you know, if he's going to be like this and he's still compliant with her, maybe I should just let him live with her. And then I could, when, he's, when he gets older, he realized that I will. But then I, just, I had a conversation with him. He absolutely, no, no, actually, he made him regress. In the last, uh, since we had this conversation, he wakes up in the middle of the night and tries to come and check on me. So I'm home. Hmm. And uh, sometimes he even comes to my bed. Which I forbid that, and I told him, maybe you should just, I'll come in your room, and then until you go sleep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I think uh, I discussed it before. I said that, if, I mean, once in a while, he gets up in the morning, six in the morning before school, and comes and tries to cuddle with me. That's fine, but it, it actually has regrets. Well, but, but, but let's look at also what he's expressing. I mean, first of all, his fear of losing you. You know, he has his fear of abandonment and that can even reflect in him getting angry with you or acting out in ways. It's not easy for a kid to handle that. He's afraid to lose you. So he's actually coming in the middle of the night to check on you. Now, when you brought up that conversation about maybe he should be with his mom, what did you say? I said, what do you pray? What would you like to do? Would you, would you be happier? Because I know you go back and forth, which is just announced you on the weekend. And he said, no, you know, I, I enjoy this. I just uh, want to be able to freely go back and forth when I need to. But then she tried. Now, let me stop you there for a second. What I would be very, let me just, and we're also losing you for anyway. I hope you, the sound comes back. But what, what's really important, the reason why I asked you is that because I was afraid that when you brought it up and it's possible he took it this way, it was almost like you're saying, you know, you're kind of acting up and becoming annoying. Can you just stay at your mom's house? And for me, it's very important that when you talk to him, you make it very clear. I want you as much as possible. I love seeing you. I love being around you. I want to spend time with you. So I want you to know I want to be with you. But sometimes I get the feeling you might be unhappy here. And that's why I'm bringing this up. Because it's very likely he heard that as I'm being a bad boy. My dad doesn't want to see me anymore. And he knows he's acting out. And it could be hard for him to regulate everything he's dealing with. And he acts out in ways that even he doesn't feel good about. But we want to make it clear to him that we love him. You know, you love him. You want him there. And it's just because you're saying you want to do what he wants to do. But it's not that you want him to leave or go. Because I think he he was afraid he was going to lose you or afraid you were going to leave him. So I would maybe even bring up that conversation again and make it very clear to him. I never will leave you. I will always be here. I want to see you as much as possible. As much as you want to see me, I'm always going to want to see you. I just brought up that conversation because I felt... I I did, actually, doctor. I did mention, I said, I'm here for you no matter what happens. You can always count on me. 
and no matter which direction it goes, if, even if you get older and let's say you decide you feel like you want to stay with your mom, I'm still going to be there for you. You can Good. come and I'll be there. So I gave him that option because my ex wanted him to, like, it didn't work. It's her rule, but when it comes to me, oh, he can do whatever he wants to do. I'll just go back to it. But of course, when he's with her, he wants to come to me, but he's not allowed to. So that also makes him angry. He actually mm. brought that up to me. He says, Dad, mom's not fair. How come when I'm with you, you allow me to do what I need? If I want to go see my friends or go back home, I can, which is a couple miles. But when I'm with her, I can't come here. It's like, mm. oh, it's their time. Yeah. Said, well, you know, you work that out with your mom. Maybe hopefully when you're big, older, we can have a discussion. Yeah. I'm okay either way. Well, I mean, that's, uh, you know, as you're seeing, he, he, as we're saying before, he notices, he's going to see what's happening. So I would have faith in that, that again, you have to be the adult and be the one who sees the bigger picture. Um, when it comes to the disrespect, you can let him know, you know, I wouldn't get into the punishing. I would even connect with him, maybe even at a time afterwards. So when things have calmed down. So if he's calling you names or it's really heated, handle the situation. But at another time, say, you know, yesterday when you said this, this, and this, it hurt my feelings. And you don't have to bring it up that you're punishing him, but say, it made me think that I feel that you're angry with me or you're upset. And I wanted to talk about that. So try to create it into a conversation rather than how do I punish him out of this behavior? You want to try to connect with him and create the relationship okay. more strongly. So well, what, what would you do when he calls your name? You just walk away? Not walk away. I would let him know, you know, that kind of that. I, I can, I think you're upset or you're angry, but that kind of language because is not okay. Yes, and that's why I wouldn't. Really I wouldn't. Want, I wouldn't I mean, go I there. Even at some point, that you know, I'm worried about the future because if he gets older, he might become physical. And you know, with these day and age, you can't get that far. So I'm, I'm actually sometimes say, well, he's this much. What if in three or fourteen, fifteen, when he becomes six foot tall, I can't get engaged like this. Well, we don't want so, you to ever get physically. No matter if he if he stays smaller than you, if he gets bigger than you, that's never going to be the approach. But what, like I said. I wouldn't engage at all. I mean, not at all. I would acknowledge and say what you're saying is that's not okay. I don't appreciate you talking to me that way. And I'm not going to talk to you if you're going to talk that way. I think you're angry. When you calm down, we can talk and then have a conversation. And like I said, once things have cooled down, I would have a conversation with him about it seems you're angry with me because when you say those hurtful things, I'm, I think that means you're not happy with me. Something is wrong. And try to connect with him at that pain. But to try to win the battle or say, because I'm bigger than you, I'm going to win. As you're recognizing, you won't always be bigger than him. But it should never be about that. It shouldn't be that because I'm more strong, you have to listen to me. That's not going to yeah, it, work. It has been a challenge because they, learn, they know your uh, weak point. Sure. And then they'll, they'll, he pushes my bottom Exactly, yeah. And try to get reaction out of me. And unfortunately, I have been yelling a couple of times, which I really mm -hmm. correct. I regret it next day. And I talked to the, the professionals. And they said just, uh, you know, similar thing you said. But I still haven't got a hold of how to deal with this sure. situation. Well, it's, it's going to be hard. And also, I want to say, you know, it's easier said than done. I'm sitting here uh, and it's very comfortable. But when someone's yelling at you and saying mean things, and like you said, sometimes 
the kids, they know which buttons to push. He's trying to get a reaction out of you. You're going to react sometimes. You want to minimize that and you don't want to do that because it's not going to help you or him. But we can understand that response. But like I said, you want to try to get underneath what's happening. So him saying the meanest thing to you, why is he trying to hurt you so much? Why does he try to hit the sensitive buttons? He's angry. He's upset. He's trying to get some reaction. Or maybe even he wants a reaction from you. He even wants more engagement from you. So you, I want you to be aware of that, that there's something more to it and try to focus. You're not going to make yourself stronger than him. You're going to have to make the relationship between you and him stronger. And that's okay. where the focus has to be. So I would talk to him the next day. Okay, I think you're angry. I think you're upset. But you understand like those kinds of things hurt me. Those don't feel good. And they tell me you're upset with me. And I don't want that to be part of our relationship. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, the fact that he calls my significant other some blood, I mean, not often, but my mother, who he feels very comfortable calling her stuff like that, but, but in a minimum way, I mean, not so as bad. I mean, he really goes after me more than okay. that. So that's why I would, I would have some conversations about the whole thing. You know, you could say, even you, you talk about grandma, you talk about, you know, your fiance, you, you get that, but especially focus on you and him. That, I would bring it back to that. That's the core, and that's where you can do the most work with him. And it's going to be a process. Be ready that it's not that one conversation is going to fix this. It's going to be you know, lots of conversations, but you want to create that bridge with him that we talk about these things, and we're going to approach this in a different way. And be patient with it, and hopefully it'll, it'll move in the right direction. Okay. Very yeah. good. I got it. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Best of luck Thank to you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All bye right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lockwe. We'll be right back. Just have a few minutes before I have to go off the air and wanted to continue with what the last caller was talking about because, you know, divorce is never easy and of course it's never easy on the, the couple, but it's even harder on the kids and they're also not the ones that made that choice and we want to be aware of the effect it has on them. Um, but as I mentioned with him, so often couples become so combative and adversarial and they want to quote unquote win the divorce and a big part of that winning that they think are one of the biggest aspects is who gets more custody of the kids. And because of that, they can fight really dirty, get the kids even involved. I've heard of so many painful stories of parents coaching the kids as to what to say to lawyers or judges um, to make sure they get more of the custody. And I think somehow people fool themselves into thinking they're doing it for their kids. And I want to be very clear that absolutely you're not. You're doing it just because of yourself, your selfish desire of winning, and how you're going to look to other people. Look at me. I must have been the better parent because they wanted, the judge awarded me 70% or 100% or whatever it is. And you're absolutely not doing it for the kids. And I think that's very heartbreaking. So be aware of that, that your kids did not choose for you to get married or for you to even bring them into this world. And they definitely did not choose a divorce either. And it's up to you to minimize the effect it has on them. And if you start firing bullets 
at the other partner thinking you're doing it because it's right. As I mentioned with the other caller, and I drew this little diagram for myself of it, your kids are in between that crossfire. and They're getting hit with those bullets. They're the ones that are going to hurt the most. So your partner fires at you, you don't have to fire back. You don't have to make the war uglier and to hurt your kids even more. And if you do fire back and you do engage in a war, just know you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for your kids. You're not doing it to make things better than for them. You're doing it for yourself. So know what you're doing. You get to make that choice, but just know what you're doing. And your kids will be much better off if you fight less and allow them to experience less pain than for you to pull at them. I do like that fable where the wise man asks the two people claiming to be the mom to pull on the child to see whose child it is. And of course, uh, the one who's lying thinks I have to pull harder to get the kid, whereas the mom doesn't want to hurt her child and can't see him face any harm, so he, she lets go. And of course, the wise man recognizes that the true mom would not want to see her, her uh, child in pain and is not going to pull on him and let go because of that and knew that she was a true mother. So be true parents to your kids and recognize that if you're going through a divorce, minimizing the pain that they go through is the right way to approach it and not to be selfish and to try to win for ourselves or how we're going to look to other people. I'll conclude with a few announcements. Again, the book of the week for this week is The Trauma of Everyday Life by Mark Epstein, which I'll post a picture of probably later today. And also we'll be switching very shortly, it could be today even or tomorrow, to 94.7 HD3 away from 100.3 HD3. So that could be happening um, within the next day or two. Stay tuned to Radio Hamra for those announcements. Again, it's only going to affect those of you listening through the radio, not anyone who listens online or through the app or through the phones and wanted to announce those numbers one last time on AT&T, Verizon, or Sprint. It's 605-468-5800. And on T-Mobile or Metro PCS, it's 360-398-4425. Just make sure that your uh, calling plan makes it so that you can call these domestic numbers if you're in the United States unlimited so you don't get some kind of bill for that but it should be good for most customers all right we've reached the end of today's program thank you to all the callers and listeners and to Raman here in the studio you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi have a wonderful day mm-hmm.